Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to your Making It Worse. We're here, we're queer, who cares? I'm Elliot Glazer. And I'm Brent Sullivan. And I'm H. Allen Scott. Textual healing. So this was uh, a, an interesting article in uh, the New York Times recently. I, I, Ooh, how I frequently read the Times. But you read it for free because of having an well, LA library I, card, whereas I pay $17.99 a month. Well, to clarify, I actually don't read it. I read the headlines and then I, I <laughs> presume I presume what is in the article. Um, but there were three reports about that came out recently uh, about closeted Catholic officials that have sort of rocked the Catholic Church. So according to the Times, analyses of cell phone data obtained by a conservative Catholic blog seem to show priests at multiple levels of the Catholic hierarchy in both the United States and the Vatican using the gay hookup app Grindr. Hmm. Some of the reports by the conservative blog, The Pillar, um, allege just Grindr use uh, and have led to resignations of high-ranking Catholic officials. Another report claimed that in 2018, at least 32 mobile devices emitting emitted a dating app mm-hmm. data signals from within areas of Vatican City that are off limits to tourists. So there's, you know, there's a, a lot to unpack here. Um, so we'll just kind of jump to it. You know, the, the most obvious is that, you know, obviously priests are supposed to live, you know, celibate lives. And, and it is it is a surprise that I, they aren't. I actually have a question about that. Because mm-hmm. like, and I'm not Catholic, but I, I mean, from that one, there's like oh, some Catholic case or something where, <laughs> It, that it's a it's it's a it's against Catholic doctrine to act on homosexuality, but it is not against Catholic Catholic doctrine to be homosexual yeah, or I to actually, communicate homosexually. <laughs> I actually, I mean? uh, a very good friend of mine growing up was a member of a fairly progressive Catholic church in Ann Arbor, and I, she would always say that the the priest of that church would say it's not, you know. We're mincing words here, but it's yeah, it's course. not about being gay. It's about acting out on yeah. being gay. That's, Which then that's the grinder app condemn be, you to hell for the rest of your days. <laughs> the the grinder app would be then. I mean, if that logic, if that thinking is correct, okay, yeah. because it's just communication. If they don't act on it, which communication yeah. is just is not against doctrine. Yeah, yeah. So so we have that's sort of the first layer of this. The second layer is, of course, um, 
there's an equally worrisome correlation that the conservative blog, The Pillar, is trying to conflate homosexuality and pedophilia as part of a longstanding oh. effort by Catholic conservatives to blame church sex abuse on the presence of gay men in priesthood. I could Wait, see that. still? I mean, what, how does that relate to Grinder though? Because they're pinning it on them because they're using gay or queer priests in general who are communicating on Grinder as sort of a almost yeah. a smoke screen for like, see, they even have their using grinder. So they're yeah. pedophiles and they probably, exist. Like it's like, it's just conflating right. two things that aren't necessarily the same. Right. right. When I saw it was a really conservative blog, you're like, well, I don't, I don't like where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> right. The I don't, pillar. I don't, th this isn't about like some sort of like, <laughs> the pillar you know, does sound like a gay like newsletter though. Doesn't it, it? Does. it does. I mean like come it read does. the pillar, the pillar. <laughs> um, and the final concern, which is, I think, relevant to probably everyone listening to this, is how did they use cell phone data to track users to Catholic-owned properties, data which many users, myself included, assume is unavailable to the general public? And yeah. that was not detailed in the article as to how. I mean, obviously, there's triangulation. You can get a general vicinity, a is that general. The case in Italy, though? I don't know. Is it um, this Vatican City that the data was tracked? Vatican City, but also in the United States. Oh, well, the United States is different. But I think in, in Vatican City, I mean, they, they're not under Italian law. So, like, the data could easily be tracked by the Vatican. Easily. So you think the... Uh... You think the Vatican leaked this data to the Well, I'm just pillar? saying, I'm just saying that like, it's not no. under like US protection laws of data yeah. or whatever. So like the Vatican can do whatever the fuck the Vatican wants to do because it's in its own yeah, yeah, yeah. country. Right, right, right. I, <laughs> I see know. what you're saying. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I found that very surprising, which is like, you know, like I was saying, like you can get a general hunch of where someone lives in, in the city by like seeing how far they are from you or something. But like- mm -hmm. I wouldn't have expected that people could basically pinpoint you to a certain location to ultimately determine that you are in a Catholic area of the city or something. That's that's pretty jarring to me. Yeah, yeah, it's really I mean, all of it is <laughs> it's very creepy that like the data is being, I guess, breached or technically not bre breached or the right. idea that like you can be found that way, but also the idea that it's like permeating in church is just it's just so like it's too predictable at this point mm -hmm. <laughs> and when you said when you sent me the article i was like oh my god like this just feels like like a remnant of the past that just it just feels like the, like the catholic church bangs its head against the wall trying to get away with get, they just try to get away with um rule and rules that go against like Nat human behavior, yeah, and then to continue to try to conflame it with pedophilia is out. I, I, I don't know, it just Catholics feels like it's just got no chill. 2000s. Like, I mean, it's just like, yeah. just I mean, I'm oh, all organized religion is a can have issues, but like, I do feel like Catholics just have no chill, or even evangelicals too. It's like, just chill the fuck out, do your Jesus thing, do your God thing, and like, just mm -hmm. be chill about it, you know. What I mean, like, mm -hmm. Jews are not chill, but at least they're not like going around talking about grinder data like no right. they're, or they're... getting in your other people's business as much just yeah. chill out and do your thing what well. do you so do we think that the priests when they're on grinder they're like completely catfishing or it's more of a do you think they're leading with catfishing or leading with anonymity anonymity oh oh, oh catfishing you mean not like catfishing to get like nudes or something i don't know yeah i guess like i mean just... i would i would imagine that if you're not 
allowed to act on your sexual sort of like interests, then it probably manifests itself in ways in which they just want to be able to communicate and maybe share nudes or like talk mm-hmm. talk sexually about stuff or whatever. I don't know. Like it's just sort of like in, a yeah. release in a way. Yeah. Um, oh shoot! I was gonna. Oh fuck! I was gonna say something. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it! I, I like had something like I left ready to Brent go. Speechless. <laughs> May Jesus yeah. strike you with the memory of <laughs> of unhinged behavior. Not even joke. Today's guest. I the first time I came in, like aware of our guest work today, I was in St. Louis, Missouri, at the Tivoli Theater, seeing. Hmm. Psycho Beach Party. Stealing and, money, okay, yeah. And it was a life-changing experience. So I'm so excited to he- to have today Charles Bush on the podcast. Hi, Charles. Hey. Hello, darling. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? I'm doing very well. So I'm curious, were, were you just a, a child or a- I was a child, a yes. I was, I was working at the movie theaters. I probably should not, I, I probably should have been working. I think I was probably working at the theater at that time. And, and I saw the film and I was just like, this is everything. This is drag and the person who's in drag wrote and directed and stars in this thing and, and like created it for themselves. And like, you really are kind of a legend of drag but also of theater because you, you, you sort of created this character and then did your own goddamn thing which is kind of incredible and unheard of in a lot of ways. Like, I mean, what is it like to be a legend? <laughs> <laughs> it's peculiar really. <laughs> uh, <laughs> highly enjoyable yeah um, yeah, yeah it's so, i'm so glad to hear you say that because I, a, fr- a friend of mine today on facebook i just don't understand people uh shared a, a a review of the from some tv you know website or something of yeah of the movie psycho beach party which you know it's many years old and 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 tagged me and and so you know this wonderful review and, and the review said oh uh, the critic said i love this movie the only thing rotten in it was charles Bush. oh my god <laughs> no why would my friend post and think that you know i would think oh what a great review how funny well well your friend your friend is like our friends here because some of our friends on this podcast in fact will go on to our own podcast and leave reviews about the other hosts on this podcast mm. brent sullivan mm. once once think, or twice i do think that that people who aren't in the in the showbiz you know the the idea just that your name is in print Mm-hmm. is so exciting yeah. they they're not aware that it may just be hideous and humiliate. very hurtful <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well you have a new film out called the sixth reel which it, it opened at outfest here in los angeles and it's really exciting can you tell us a little bit about that well it, it, it's um we're just beginning to to give it out to the to the world uh you know we we um had our first public screening at outfest and and we got an award for um Nice. Uh, best ensemble acting ensemble which really is much better than getting an award for yourself <laughs> right, that's right performance it's better to get one for the whole co- company really um but uh but yeah so then um we're going to be showing it at different festivals and we're in the middle of um you know f- uh figuring out exactly to, how to get it released to the general public mm. so what is it about um, well the movie is uh a, a madcap contemporary comedy caper movie, mm. and it's uh, set in the world of 
obsessive classic film collectors and dealers. <laughs> and I, uh, I play a male character in this one, actually. I, I play a, a, a disreputable, it's a big stretch, uh, disreputable <laughs> movie um, memorabilia collector. And I stumble across this rare, legendary silent film that was thought to be lost forever. And uh, I, I get it and I have to decide whether or not to do the right thing and you know give it to a museum or TCM or something, or do I sell it to a private collector and they'll never be sell seen it. again for a lot mm -hmm. of money Sounds and all sorts of madcap hijinks ensue as the film is stolen from me and i have to get it back and there's sex and romance and, and hilarity that's, <laughs> that's great my, my great cast we got uh margaret cho and mm -hmm. uh and handsome tim daly and just about every, the rest of the cast really uh almost every one of them has either won or been nominated for a tony award it's very oh, wow. theater uh heavy cast so I mean, it's very great. exciting yeah i can't wait for everybody to get to see it that reminds me i there was always a an urban i don't even think it's an urban legend i think it's been verified that jerry lewis created a movie about being uh, a a clown, clown yeah at the hot in the holocaust and it came out so poorly that he like bought ev like he you know it made the studio give him every copy and he said it will never be released and apparently it's like like no one has ever seen it. Have you heard that that myth? Yes, it's called it's called the day the clown cried. I think mm, right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Right. I, I thought I, I may be wrong. I feel like I read that that it was it was found. You know, everything oh. is found. You know, we right, yeah. know where the Titanic is. We know where you know, <laughs> what right. happened to Amelia Earhart, Anastasia. Right. She's been you know, we figured out that mystery. So I, I kind of think you know it's uh, they figured they found Jerry Lewis's movie. Yeah. That's, wild next up youtube go ahead alan <laughs> <laughs> well so like one of the things i think that when i when i first saw psycho beach party and when i first sort of came across your work i was in missouri so i had no access to sort of like new york drag or like the history of drag it was very sort of like foreign to me and when i researched a little bit of your work it kind of blew me away how like you created i mean you're, you're you are charles bush so you never really created like a a fake drag name or anything like that. You kind of did drag in your own way in the eighties where you sort of created this character for yourself, but it's still you. Well, well it's more that, you know, I, I never, um, I never performed in a, um, a drag act in a club. You know, I never uh, lip synced or just performed solo as a, a drag performer. Now, my, the whole thing with me was was theater, mm -hmm. and I'm from New York. Originally, I was born here, and, and the dream was always to have a career in the theater, mm -hmm. uh, being being on stage. and And I always was interested in writing. I, I was writing full length plays when I was 11, and so it that was always the idea. I didn't, I, but when I went to Northwestern uh, in Evanston, Illinois, I was a theater major. And it became quite evident to me after a while that when I was never ever cast in a play, that I was just, you know, seemed too too gay and too androgynous and whatever I was, they didn't want. And, yeah. and, I, and I and I'm very you know pragmatic person, and I thought, well, um, if I'm not being cast in university theater, I may have a hard time of it in the professional world. <laughs> right. <laughs> And, uh, and then I started seeing, being from New York, uh, particularly when I was uh, come home for on vacations, I started seeing more experimental theater and downtown theater mm. and it was, saw that you could 
there was a whole nother kind of theater besides just the commercial Broadway plays that I grew up watching mm -hmm. and that I could create my own theatrical world if, uh, if I chose to. So I began writing roles for myself starting in college. And, and I just, you know, I thought whatever, I figured out just that, or, you know, that whatever it was that people thought was so strange about me or, or, or so commercial, maybe that's actually what was unique about me. Mm. And how did, how did the, how did the move turn, go into, um, I mean, it, I, I wouldn't, would you call it drag or would you call it female impersonation or is it a mix of both or? I just, I just wanted to play, uh, write myself roles that I could be wonderful in. And I, I, I was always very, um, you know, very attuned to the, the feminine in my nature. Mm -hmm. No, I was always doing, uh, I, I had a knack for um, celebrity, female celebrity voices of actresses from the, the golden age of Hollywood right. early mm -hmm. on. And it was just a question of how do I actually do that in, in the context of a, of a play? So it was all, always being in a play. So I, I, I never, you know, back then, things are, things are very different. It's so hard to talk about this sometimes to not come off... Uh, like I'm being patronizing to somebody else. I be patronizing. It's fine. We do that all the time. Just words, you know, I'm talking about 1972. Things are very, very different, you know. And so I just didn't think of myself as a drag queen. I thought it was just it was just that I was an actor who created these female characters, right? And 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 actually, the first part of my career when I after I graduated college. I, I wasn't in drag because I, you know, I didn't know how to, you know, how do you really just start putting on a play when nobody knows you and there's no money yeah. and all that. So it was easier to start as a solo performer. Mm -hmm. And I wrote myself these solo plays where, you know, they were very elaborate narratives. They're almost like screenplays. And I, mm -hmm. I played all the characters, male and female, mm -hmm. and I didn't change costume. I just changed you know, voices and told this story. And, and I did that for about eight years and wow. booked myself in small nonprofit theaters around the country and, and wow. just learned and grew and got better. But I, I did I did sense that um, that the female characters really were the most vivid. They were, and they were ones I enjoyed the most. I, yeah. I, I played the male characters just because in the story I needed those characters. And, and I remember um, someone said to me one time, well, why don't you, you know, why don't you just play the, f the female parts and write a piece where you're just the female characters? And I thought, oh, you know, I can't do that. And then and I thought, well, why, why can't I, you know? And, uh, and then I finally got some friends together and, and we actually put on a play where I didn't have to play those male characters. I could just mm -hmm. play the one female character that I knew I could do really well. What is it about like, there is something, we've talked about this on the podcast before, there is something about sort of those female, uh, the, the women in film and television and music who are kind of like the outcasts, you know, the Barbara Streisands, the Bette Midlers, the Liza Minnelli's, the ones that like aren't the typical beauties or aren't the typical whatever, but yet queer, gay men specifically, but queer people sort of are, gravi they gravitate towards them. And similar to, you Whoopi. know, Whoopi. <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi Goldberg yeah. also would be in that, I think too. Yeah. Where we... Yeah we kind of 
we, we, um, we celebrate them in a way. And sort of a lot of what your drag is, is celebrating these women of sort of old Hollywood mm-hmm. as being powerful. I mean, in Cycle Beach Party, you're like the detect, you're the person who's solving everything. And she's this glamorous sort of woman <laughs> solving all of the problems and figuring out what's going on. And yeah. it's, it's, a real, it's a real power statement. Like, what is it about those characters that sort of queer people respond to, do you think? Yeah, I wonder really. Uh, well, I think, I think it is so you kind of nailed it in a way that they're often women who um, who could, could be marginalized but somehow find this power within them that and uh, I mean somebody like Judy Garland I guess would mm-hmm. definitely be in that that group and and you know and I I I think so much is made about her being kind of this sort of victim when I th- I think her appeal to so many gay men particularly when she was alive was that all these terrible things might happen to her, but she's going to get up there and keep singing. And for every, you know, uh, I, I don't think you really listen to Judy Garland records when you're depressed, like, like Billie Holiday, you would. Mm, yeah. Because Judy Garland, for every man that got away torch song, the next one is she's singing, you know, it's a great day for the Irish. And you know, it says, <laughs> it's just, you know, big March up tune, get happy. Yeah. Right after she's singing some very sad song, so it's all up with her. And I think you know the other other ladies too. It's it's about the comeback. It's about the you know I may be down, but I'm but I'm coming right back up again, and I'm I can't be defeated. That's inspiring. And I I don't. It's hard for me to speak for for gay men today because you no, know, I'm I'm you know, quite elderly. In, in, even though I know I don't I don't look it, but I <laughs> I, I, I am, and so I. I, you know, I can really only speak for my own generation mm-hmm. and, um, who responded to these women, but I, I would imagine. So I don't know. I mean, do people, I mean, did Lady Gaga and, and Beyonce, do they fit that pattern a little bit? I, I, think, I think so. What do you think, guys? No, I, I don't think, I think Gaga does. Beyonce's, I think it's sort of moved to this like place across the board, not just with like gay people, but like it's moved from like, quirky outcast to like worshiping fierceness mm, yeah. and I, and not just like oh, right. people like Beyonce but just like you know Jonathan Van Ness or whatever anybody who's like <laughs> unapologetically you know truly like unapologetically like fierce and unre- uh, unrelenting yeah. in a way is just I think that's sort of taken over the old yeah, um, character yeah. who's like more quirky and and um, you know tradition like not traditionally attractive or whatever whatever the yeah. unkind yeah. the kind yeah. words were for, right, for right. unattractive <laughs> <laughs> right because yeah, like beyonce is just spectacularly beautiful and, yeah yeah, yeah. But, but then you know there's also you know gay men of they also as far as black divas you know uh, diana ross was yeah. was beautiful and and powerful Whit- and, Whitney and Houston. We, all, we all loved her and and then later Whitney Houston. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I guess there are different different kinds. I guess really it's it's hard to generalize. I guess there are certain certain female icons who have this kind of vulnerability that mm-hmm. and have despite everything they're going to sing. And then and then I guess there's the other kind of fierce, tough person who yeah uh, just it's a, some, somewhat different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess. The other thing that sort of blows me away about your career specifically is you know cycle beach party came out was 2000 
I forget what year. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Something like that. And, and then Die, Mommy, Die was shortly after that. And, and then you had a, a amazing Broadway play called The oh, Alger's yeah. Wife. Taylor, which, The Alger's Wife. Yeah, Taylor, The Alger's Wife, which was nominated for the Tony Award for Best Play. So you had, you know, some great success in, in sort of 2000 and on with this sort of, and even though you weren't in the play, it's, it was by you and it sort of had that Charles Bush sort of element of fierceness to it in sort of the characters. And like, one of the things that sort of blows me away about your career is you were building up this character and doing these plays in New York and sort of building up this persona over the course of the modern gay rights movement and how you single-handedly are able to write, direct, star in these movies in like like these big movies and get sort of the, the past to do it at a time when they weren't really giving a lot of queer people the ability to tell yeah. queer stories, let alone a drag queen be the star of a movie that you know a big studio produces. Well, they were they were indie films. I yeah. can't try. Yeah, to they weren't. It, it wasn't big. But, yeah, they yeah, but it got released. It got wide release, which is a thing. Yeah, that, yes, like, it did. Yes, it did. Um, yeah. huh, I I don't know. I I I don't want to be false modest or anything, but some of the big battles were fought before me, mm -hmm. you know, in in the '60s. But I'm I'm um, I think of myself as first generation post Stonewall, mm. and. Um, so I came along at a, at a pretty good time, although it, it took me, you know, um, you know, I didn't get my my big break till I was 31. I mean, I, that's I guess at the time it seemed forever, and, and I felt so old when actually I guess 31 is not not bad to no. yeah, have your break. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, but that and that was that was it was. I got a lot. I think you have to. You have to be in a position. You have to make yourself available for luck to find you. Mm. I really believe that. I really believe that. And and sometimes it has to. You know, I was frustrated in my twenties. You know, I couldn't totally earn a living as mm -hmm. a solo performer, and you know, I draw very well. And so instead of being a waiter, I earned my living a lot of times as a quick sketch portrait artist on the sidewalk. Oh really? Oh wow! wow. What was that? What was that like? That did that. I didn't care for it too much because you know the yeah. the unspoken uh, contract is that if the person doesn't like the drawing, they don't have to pay for it. Oh. And, I, I, and out of like maybe the ten thousand portraits I did, I think only maybe twice did somebody not like what what, what I did. I became quite a you know I didn't do caricatures. I did like get you a know, portrait pastel looks just looks yeah. just like you. And um, yeah. I, I learned pretty quickly though how to. Uh, Make a big nose di diplomatically smaller and a weak right. <laughs> diplomatically larger, and just you know make everybody look pretty and yeah. yeah. Like, but yeah, so I used to um, I did that and I worked on the Sounds boardwalk good. of Wildwood, New Jersey, and, and mm. just all sorts of things to, to earn a living. Just trying to, yeah. trying to do it, and meanwhile, doing my solo shows in different cities and getting a following and in San Francisco and Washington, mm -hmm. DC, Chicago. And just you've learned, also, you've taught as well too. What, uh, what? Oh, sorry, go ahead, I need to interrupt. Uh, well, I was just gonna say though, that that in a certain sense, as frustrating as it was, and and I was always just, you know, I was such a bore to, particularly the men that I was dating, because it's just, you know, we went to see any kind of play. It was like, I should, why, why aren't I up there? Right, you know, right. I, I, there was an older man I was dating for a while who was much older, who was, I guess, I guess invest uh, 
investment counselor or something. And he finally, he had enough of me before he dumped me. He said, oh man, because in any other profession, you'd be a, you know, a millionaire the way that, <laughs> you with your obsessive drive, you know, yeah. but just the theater is so hard. Yeah. But, um, yeah. But that, that paid, I mean, you had the one of the longest running shows of yeah. the yeah. longest running plays on Broadway. Well, but then before that it was my big break was, and, and, and it was probably a good thing that it didn't happen five years before when I wasn't ready, when I had, because mm. I'd had, my big break was, just, I, I don't want to, I've talked about it so much, so I don't want to waste time on it. But anyway, I, I put the, I very quickly, just kind of for the fun of it, wrote this little play, you know, and, and I called it Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, I had a crazy yeah. title, and I got a group of friends of mine together, and we put it on in this, this, bar art yeah. gallery on the Lower East Side is very kind of a strange neighborhood. And and we were in the right place. It was called Vampire Lesbians of Sodom. And we were in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of interest in that neighborhood of uh, the East Village in the mid 80s. And Madonna had come out of that that mm-hmm. world and Keith Haring. And we were just in the right place. And the play took off. And we produced it ourselves off Broadway for a regular commercial run. And it ran five years. It's one of the longest running oh, wow. plays in the history of Off-Broadway. And, and that's what established me as a, as a commercial writer, you know, and I played the female lead, lead character in that. Uh, and, and, and from that moment, I could earn a living mm. just in the theater. And, and that, led, that led to all these other wonderful opportunities. But I, yeah. but I just kept doing it myself. I had to always do it myself. And, or, or, and that's, that's not exactly right. I, I've been very fortunate throughout my whole life that um, I've connected, starting with my, my aunt who, who actually adopted me and raised me. Um, I've, there's been a series of people throughout my life, continuing to this day, who I've, who've somehow I've attached myself to and they've attached themselves to me. Who, are, who have a lot of focus and concentration and get things done. Mm-hmm. And they've, they've kind of taken me and my eccentric talents <laughs> and made it possible. Now they've all been, several have been my directors and producers, you know? And so um, I've just been very lucky that way because I'm not really a detailed person. And I, on my own, I, I wouldn't have been able to do do these things but but each of my these friends of mine who i worked with for many years they they made things happen mm-hmm. and they made it possible possible for me to tell my story my stories mm-hmm. and, and and be and be this leading lady yeah yeah you also were on a i mean not only were you was psycho beach party sort of an awakening for me creatively as sort of a writer, comedian, drag person, like it sort of, it helped open my eyes to the possibility of queer sort of art Mm -hmm. in a way. But you also were on a show that was my sexual awakening Oz (laughs) on HBO. I can't tell you the, I mean, Oz was probably how I realized that there are a variety of male nudity that I could enjoy. I, <laughs> what was what was it like working on Oz? Because I've never talked to anyone. No, I talked to Christopher Maloney about working on Oz and I talked to him about his butt, but you're Showing the second butt. person yeah, yeah, yeah. I could talk yeah. to about that. Yeah. Well, what did you think of Christopher Maloney's butt? <clears throat> it was riveting. <laughs> <laughs> I, it was funny thing with that, but see everything, you, know, you get one kind of success and then that opens the doors for other things. and. 
I never, I never wanted to pursue a, an acting career beyond my own work. I just thought, mm -hmm. I didn't think I was very good at it. I, my talents lie within a very specific thing of creating these, these mainly female characters, although I've now gone, yeah. actually have played some male roles occasionally. But anyway, <laughs> um, they, uh, I was a big fan of that show. And I, I mentioned it to my uh, late manager, Jeff Melnick. I said, oh, don't you love that show? He goes, oh, it's too violent. Uh, and so I, and I wasn't really serious because I don't pursue that kind of career. But I, I just said, oh, it'd be, oh, wouldn't it be kind of cool to be on a show like that? And he, uh, he was always trying to get me to, to be in other people's work. And so he, he called the casting director and, and she said, oh, I think that's a great idea. And then I, I knew Tom Fontana, the creator of it, mm -hmm. a, a little bit through a mutual friend. And, he, and you know, they shot it just around the corner from where I live. And so they, they called me up and, and said, why don't you come over? And I went to his office and he said, love to have you on the show. Who would you like to play? Wow. <laughs> and wow. so I said, I said, well, listen, I said, you know, I'm the least street person there is, darling. <laughs> the, but, but, however, I said, I could play someone who seems rather fragile and uh, delicate, but is just lethal. Yeah. And mm. so let me think about it. I thought, oh, that's the end of that. And then <laughs> later, I got a call from the company saying, uh, what are your available dates? On the, are you available and, and start shooting? And, and wow. here's the character. And, and so and it was exactly really what I described. And, that's really cool. Um, yeah, it was really, it was just fascinating. It, you know, they shot it all in this, uh, at that time, those first seasons when, when I was on uh, in um, the Chelsea Market building. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not far from where I live, and you know, it, and so that whole set was just this permanent, huge Oz prison, and they shot all in every possible space. So, like, if I'd be in the dressing room, I couldn't. I certain times I couldn't open the door because they were actually shooting in the hallway. <laughs> oh my and, God! Wow. And also, never. They, if they had scenes that took place in other cities like Miami or Guatemala, it was always the same street, 16th Street. And they would just dress up 16th Street to look a little different. But I, I found it uh, thrilling. I just got a little um, at the end. Uh, well, first I was the first couple shows I did. You know, it was very exciting because I I killed a, I got into drag and I killed a, an old elderly um, mafia uh, don. Yeah. Uh huh. And because of that, just because of that, they put me on death row. <laughs> Yeah. And then they then they invited me back for a second season, mm -hmm. and I thought, oh well, you know, they they're going to really give me lots of storylines, and oh, and Chris Maloney and I will have sex, and right, right. <laughs> and then once but once you're on death row, there's really not much they can do with you, yeah, and right. I thought, and my character had AIDS, so between the AIDS and death row, it did not bode well for too many episodes. Yeah, each episode I started getting sicker. And I oh thought, no. Oh, <laughs> and they started killing off people on death row. I said, oh, this is really bad. This, this does not bode well for me, you know? And, uh, and so I thought I have to, I have to be proactive here. Yeah. So, uh, so I, since I, you know, since I don't pursue that kind of acting career, I'll, I don't worry about burning any bridge. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, no other actor would have done this. I, I wrote a little note to Tom Fontana and I uh, suggesting, I said, I'm sure you have it all worked out. I'm sure it's great. However, what do you think if, um, if when I go to the uh, gas chamber that if I get dressed up in drag, like um, 
uh, Susan Hayward in, in I Want to Live, yeah. <laughs> and Rita Moreno, who played the, the lay nun, Sister mm -hmm. Pete, I said, and if Rita could, um, then comes into my cell and sort of helps me do my nails, and then I go, I go to my death, a great defiance, you know, and fuck you to everybody. Um, so, so he said, very interesting. Script arrives, and I'm dressed up like like uh, Susan Hayward. Oh. Rita Moreno comes into the cell, helps me with my nails, then it gets different. I, I start to faint, and she says, why don't you lie down? I'll see you in the morning. And when they come and get me, I've died oh, in my no. feet. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I, and so she had a huge, it was a big scene for her. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, she is Rita Moreno. I mean, right. let's like, Rita Marino, yeah. she got a real big dramatic scene out of it. So I, she kind of owes me on that one. But well, then it was what a way to funny go. when I died. But then when I died, you know, um, it was supposed to be a slow pan, mm -hmm. camera pan over my dead face, and then all the way to all, the warden and, and B.D. Wong, who was the priest, and Rita Moreno was a nun, and all of them watching. Talk about a gay. But it's very set. difficult. It's more difficult to play dead than you would think. Mm. <laughs> and they do very few takes on Oz. It was fast, fast, fast. So the cameras panned, and then suddenly the the I guess it was the AD said, "We saw his his eyelids twitched. His eyelids twitched." <laughs> oh, oh dear! So then Rita comes over to me and says, "Here's a big secret I learned when I was a 20th Century Fox: keep your eyes uh, closed for five seconds. Then uh, before they say action, it's okay, Jed." So I said, so, "No, I had my eyes closed and." Slow pan. So we, we, his eyes are twitching. His eyes are twitching. <laughs> and BD Wong comes over to me and whispers, "Big secret is keep your eyes wide open before." They <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! So we That's tried funny. Again. I just couldn't. I couldn't do just it. Just tried them both. I just finally tried it was just quick pan. Yeah. Quick pan to, to the, it was a quick uh, death for for Susan Hayworth. Well, yeah. Charles, I I have to say I. One of the things that I get really sort of angry about is when I'm talking about drag with people and I do drag. And so like we talk about sort of the the great admirers of people that I admire, we admire. And when someone doesn't know your work, I get violently angry like your character oh, on Oz. And it, it makes me very, very upset. So mm. anyone listening, if you don't know Charles Bush, you're an idiot, but you should go and figure, <laughs> figure some stuff out because you need to go watch these films and respect respect where it all started. Charles, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate yeah, you being thanks, here. Charles. I've had, I've had a lot of fun. Thank you, guys. Of course. Thank you. And and everyone, when the film comes out, you should go see The Sixth Reel. It's a lot of fun. And it's it's uh, and go see it. Everyone, go watch all of other Charles Bush's films as well. They're really worth it. Thank you, Charles. Thank you. Bye-bye. And another thing. So I wanted to play a clip for everyone. Um, this is a video from NPR's Story Course uh, Storytelling Series. And let's take a listen to about a two minutes worth of this clip, and then we'll talk about it afterwards. I'm riding to school with my oldest brother. And on the way to school, I'm putting glitter all over my face. And my brother said, what in the hell are you doing? I said, I'm putting on my costume. He said, well, I wouldn't be caught dead wearing that. So he dropped me off at the school and he called my dad up and he said, Dad, I think you better get up there. This is not going to look good. So my dad drove up to the high school and he had his farmer jeans on and they had cow crap on them and he had his clodhopper boots on. And when I saw him coming, I ducked around the hall and hid from him. And it wasn't because of what I was wearing. <laughs> it was because of what he was wearing. So 
the assembly goes well, and I climb in the car, and I'm riding home with my father. And my father says to me, uh, I was walking down the hall this morning, and I saw a kid that looked a lot like you ducking around the hall to avoid his dad, but I know it wasn't you because you would never do that to your dad. And I squirmed in my seat, and I finally busted out, and I said, well, Dad, did you have to wear your cow crap jeans to my assembly? <laughs> and he said, look, everybody knows I'm a dairy farmer. This is who I am. And he looked me square in the eye. And then he said, now, how about you? When you're a full-grown man, who are you going to go out with at night? And I said, I don't know. And he said... I think you do know, and it's not going to be that McLaughlin girl that's been making goo-goo eyes at you, but you won't even pick up the damn telephone. And I'm going to tell you something today, and you might not know what to think of it now, but you're going to remember when you're an adult, don't sneak. Because if you sneak like you did today, it means you think you're doing the wrong thing. And if you run around and spend in your whole life thinking that you're doing the wrong thing, then you'll ruin your immortal soul. And out of all the things a father in 1959 could have told his gay son, my father tells me to be proud of myself and not sneak. So I have, uh, I've always loved this video because it's such appropriate modern advice packaged in the 50s and delivered by a gruff dairy farmer. And I just think it's so like novel. What did you guys think of this when you first heard it? I thought it was super sweet and I, I just thought it was, it did feel novel. It did feel like different, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I just, yeah, it felt like a nice sort of unusual way to, uh, it just felt like, yeah, it felt, it felt unusually uh, uh, novel and full wholehearted and earnest without mm -hmm. being like too, you know, I'm afraid of, I'm always afraid of storytelling because even I, I just, you know, you've heard me talk many times about how I, don't like the the way that storytelling is all based on sounding like improvised yeah but also like very like you know affected and quiet and then so and the it's like and then the last line is always like <laughs> and that's when i decided you but know, that's, that's the when, opposite of story core <laughs> right but i'm saying i'm usually afraid of storytelling yeah. but yeah. then this is clearly uh an exception to the rule <laughs> Wait, Elliot, give, give us your best end of a story, storytelling story. Yeah, <laughs> this is like at the moth or like on like This American Life or something where they're the last, the person ends and then says, and that was the last day I walked my bike up the hill. Yeah, right. And I realized. Yeah, mine is always, um, and then I look outside and it was snowing. You're like, all right. I, I, Wait, my old, roommate, my old roommate had a storytelling show once where she, it basically was about her having migraines and, uh. it, and it culminated <laughs> in, and that is how I had a pain in the brain. Ugh, my friend, oh no. <laughs> my friend dragged me to the moth and I was like, you know, I'm not against storytelling, but I'm, I'm not. And I don't think storytelling is bad. It's just, this was like 10 people and they're all doing the same thing where they're mm -hmm. trying to, they're trying to make something. I mean, most of them, honestly, they're like white and, they're, and th their yeah. stories are not very mm -hmm. interesting. They're sort oh, of like boring nostalgia. <laughs> and I it's know. like every story is about something about a bike or pudding or whatever. <laughs> we should, we should <laughs> clarify for people who, you know, 
aren't going to a lot of storytelling shows or improv shows or any of those shows like in yeah. LA or New York in that there's a difference between the moth and a yes. lot of these storytelling shows that we're talking about and story core NPR story yes. core right, is right. fundamentally, it harks back to sort of what they used to do. They did it a lot during the civil rights movement at, during the reconstruction that where they would get slave narratives and they would just record people just sharing their stories, sharing a particular story that is highlighted so that it's archived in a way mm, yeah. it's, it's, it's forever. And it's not, performers it's not people who are on stage telling a story it's literally just someone sitting in their kitchen yeah. telling this one story and yeah. that's the way you kind of want to hear a story exactly right, that's what makes right. StoryCorps so unique and i i my reaction to this yeah, i am a huge sucker obviously for any mm. sort of like distant daddy stories because i have mm. a distant daddy and um and it's the eyed here anytime yeah. no it does i get really emotional whenever it's like a dad thing because i don't yeah. have a relationship with my dad i never did i have a great stepdad but like mm. There right, is that sort of disconnect. I remember when I was watching that Pixar movie Onward. Do you know that movie mm, Onward? Oh yeah. my And it's about and it's about the dad who died and my dad didn't die, but like I have no right. relationship with him. And so when he had to like give up his dad, spoiler alert, it's been a few years, deal with it. Um and when he had to <laughs> give up his dad and the the memory of his dad, I was ugly crying to the point of I physically could not stand up at the end of the movie. Like I had yes, to sit there and just like process watch. it. And this right story- the beginning of that movie. It's, a, it's an emotional film, but the ending was, yeah. that really got me. Yeah. Um, and, and that it's the brothers and I have my brothers and oh my God, here we go again. Mm. Anyway- um, Two out of three getting misty-eyed here. With this one, it was really sweet because it's, it's this sort of, that idea of like, and what I always find surprising is a lot of times the coming out stories, you know, that I, I'm always struck by the ones where the mom is the one who has a problem mm -hmm. with the kid being gay and the dad, particularly with boys and mm -hmm. with, and the dad is the one that was just sort of okay with it. And just sort of yeah. like understood yeah. that male sexuality is strange and has a variant and what all these things. And, mm -hmm. and this story really kind of personifies that. And it's really beautiful in that way. You know, I, I, I still, this advice will pop into my head from time to time because I just think it's a really, it's just fundamentally good advice. Don't sneak. You know, don't, don't sneak. sneak because yeah. if you sneak, it means that you think that you're doing something wrong. Yeah. Um, and it just, it's also, it strikes me that in our world and in, I think, social media in particular, it's, social media is just absolutely saturated with faux whimsical mm -hmm. self-empowerment advice that's just so completely contrived to, to me. Yeah. Like sometimes, you know, every once in a while you find some Instagram page that has like a million followers and it's just literally <laughs> just the dumbest motivational dumbest quotes yeah. that are yeah. like- Be platitudes. Be, be you today, no one else. Like, Which is like, what? It, it blows me away that like, I mean, I think back to my to my high school days and when like, I was the only one that was out. I was so flamboyantly gay. I was very visibly, sort of like what Charles Bush was talking about, how like he was so gay that he was never getting cast really in anything or getting sort of being yeah. a part of anything. And I really felt that too, where, so I had to like make up this funny character sort of person persona to sort of survive. And in a weird way, it was like my parents allowed that because they knew that that was my way of figuring out who I was. Mm -hmm. And everyone else just sort of had to come along mm -hmm. for the ride. And yeah. if I had like Instagram with those fake sort of like inspirational oh shit telling me yeah. shit every single day, I think I would have been a fucking mess. I think I think I think I would be more depressed if I yeah. followed. Oh, yeah. Because then I would be like, well, I can't this person's telling me to be myself and I don't even feel like myself. Like I would literally yeah. have meltdowns every day about not being able to live yeah. up with this fucking Instagram inspirational right, shit. Right.
so that's why I, I feel like a video like this and the advice from it is sort of infinitely more meaningful than some diatribe on Twitter about being born this way or whatever. Yes. Also <laughs> in the video, there's a there's the, the woman that, that keeps calling him, the girl that keeps calling him on the phone that his dad says, that's why you're ignoring. That's yeah. Sadie, actually. That, that, oh, that, all right. That actually is Sadie. We'll post a picture of that. <laughs> What would your aunt say? Brent, what would your aunt say about something she heard on today's show? I also pronounce it Beyonce. <laughs> My aunt Joanne would say, you know, uh, your aunt and I saw uh, the tale of the allergist's wife 10 times. Nine with Linda Lavin, one with Rhea Perlman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the show was around forever. It was unbelievable. Uh, how about Aunt uh, Aunt Anne? My Aunt Anne would say, wait, they can track the things we use on our cell phones? <laughs> Ray, delete the browser history. <laughs> I have a Thanks. feeling she would sneak upon porn. Like, oh, I feel like sure. she, would, she would put in something and then all of a sudden it would just be like cum shots to the face. Oh yeah. My God. yeah that, that, that definitely <laughs> seems like it's up her alley. Yeah. Uh, wait, was Rhea Perlman actually in that play, Elliot? Mm -hmm. Yep. It was, oh, it was Linda Lavin. Wow. It was Linda Rhea Lavin, wasn't it? And Michelle Lee, yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, wow. Well, sorry, yeah. Rhea replaced, I think, replaced Linda Lavin. Yeah, because Linda Lavin originated the role, I think. Right, right. Yeah. And now is, is Rhea Perlman in Come From Away? I can't remember. <laughs> oh my God. The amount of, wait, before we go, the amount of messages oh. that we have received from Apple putting Come From Away on their platform, people being like, are you uh, gonna cover this? Are you gonna talk about this? Are you gonna talk about this? We're gonna do something. Yes, yeah. yes, we will We will figure, we will certainly but figure something out. sit tight. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right, everyone, that's Elliot Glazer. I'm Brent Sullivan, and he's H. Allen Scott. <laughs>